President Trump, First Lady Melania Trump, top aide Hope Hicks, they all now have coronavirus. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has tested positive for coronavirus. Bill Stepien, Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway, Ronna McDaniel, the head of the uh, Republican National Committee, three senators, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Mike Lee of Utah, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Senior administration official tells me that the coronavirus infections and spread likely happened when the president had that event two Saturdays ago announcing his Supreme Court pick. On September 26th, a group of about 200 politicians, aides, allies, and family members gathered at the White House's Rose Garden. They were there to hear President Trump announce the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. The ceremony was outdoors, but before and after the event, we saw people mingling, leaning in close, shaking hands, hugging. Very few masks were seen. Since then, at least 15 people have tested positive for COVID-19. Many who attended the event and others who are in the president's inner circle. Some are declaring this a possible super spreader event. Usually it can be difficult to pinpoint these sorts of things, a super spreader event after the fact. You have to rely on a lot of detective work from contact tracers. But this one ceremony is giving us a look at the anatomy of how it all can happen. So on today's podcast, we're gonna see what we can all learn from this potentially dangerous event. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. When we are looking at how the virus moves in the air, it's very hard for people to sort of get their head around that this may be airborne or aerosolized and out there and how it affects some people and not others. That's CNN medical analyst Aaron Bromage. He's a professor of biology and immunology at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. He describes the way the virus can spread like the smoke from a campfire. You know, it's a very rough analogy, but if we think of a campfire and say that that's a person who is infected and releasing virus, we can see that not everybody sitting around that campfire is equal in regards to the amount of virus or smoke that they're actually getting into their face. So it's not like it's the ring around the person that is actually going to be the the risk. It's those that are on the side where more of the virus is being projected, either through being talking or through the breeze, the air that's blowing it there, or when we're inside, from which way the air conditioner is blowing from one side of the room to the other. So this is all about that uh, event on Saturday at the Rose Garden. Do you think, Professor, that could be a super spreader event? It's likely that either that event or something surrounding uh, another event just before or just after that event was a super spreading event. Um, we're seeing that there is this cluster of people that all seem to have been infected at roughly the same time. They're all becoming symptomatic at roughly the same time. But we do, do need to remember that when we're outdoors and we're not talking, it is quite difficult for the virus to find a new host. But that doesn't mean that when the event finished, when they were all coming up and hugging and shaking hands and saying congratulations, that that wasn't where it occurred. When you look at an event like that, do you think that it's inevitable that there's going to be significant spreading, even super spreading? When I look at an event like that, uh, when they have no other defenses, they relied on testing, they relied on just one layer of defense, that when we have so much infection in the U.S. population, 
and you gather together 100, 150, 200 people in the same spot, you're working on probabilities that one of them is going to be infected. And if one of those people happens to have a high viral load and is shedding right at that time, then this is what you end up with. So I think they've been lucky up until now that they've got away with this, um, but it has caught up with them. What, what do you, um, can, can you help us picture what is happening then? So people are sitting around, they're, out, they're in that setting outdoors for a period of time, closely clustered, uh, more than 15 minutes, mostly not wearing masks. You can't see the virus, but what is happening during a super spreading event? When you've got somebody that is highly infectious, I know we don't like to focus on the person, but uh, a lot of the times you can call this a super shedder. And that's a person that has a high viral load, usually very mobile, that is releasing a lot of virus into, um, into their mouth, into their nose, and then eventually out into the air. So if you are near that person and that person is breathing, they're releasing a little bit of virus and the person next to them or downwind of them is breathing it in. When they start speaking, a lot more comes out. And so the people around them, and then if they started speaking or giving a kiss and a hug, hello, and coming in very close, then even more virus is being projected towards them. It is likely, again, that it's interactions as well as proximity that resulted in the infections that we're seeing here. So it can be part of conversation, but it can also be I sat next to a person who was infected for a long period of time and got a little bit of virus over time that got enough to establish an infection in me. Is there a way to contextualize how much safer it is to do these sorts of events outside versus inside? Yeah, so the, the data, it's fairly strong to suggest that outdoors in the vicinity of 20 to 30 times safer than indoors. And that's where I tend to think that the super spreading event came through the interactions afterwards. There was a lot of close contact on the lawn afterwards. But remember, um, the president wasn't there in coming down onto the lawn. It was really the after event and the pre-event where they became really close together indoors for an extended period of time. That's where if I was a betting person, I would be putting my money on of where this occurred. I think that's really interesting. Whenever you have these sorts of events, you're saying there's probably uh, some pre-events and post-events as well. It's not typically just that singular event, and, and that's worth uh, some of the contact tracing investigation as well. If you were advising the White House or advising an institution that wanted to have gatherings like this, would you tell them there is a way to do these events safely, or would you just say, look, right now, in the middle of a pandemic, you simply shouldn't do these types of events? I think there's a way to do it safer. Um, there's never a safely in this because of the virus is always around. And it's also dependent on where you are in the country and the, you know, the current um, infectious rate that we have in that local county or town where you are. But if you are putting together an event, outdoors is always safer than indoors. But then we need other layers of defense as well. There should have been masks on people. There should have been distance between people. And we really should have stuck to that no hugging, no you know, handshaking that we saw that occurred because that is creating the exact interactions that we would expect would facilitate transmission of this virus. One thing that the, the president has said, others have said, is that we haven't had any impact from these other rallies. It hasn't led to uh, an increase in the number of people becoming infected. The Rose Garden ceremony, 
the high profile people they got tested, we're seeing this play out real time. But what do you think has happened at these other outdoor rallies as well? Yeah, I, I think every rally, every protest, uh, it doesn't matter if you're gathering together in a large group of people, there has almost certainly been transmission. It is impossible, very difficult to visualize that transmission or document that transmission when there is so many people attending these events and then they scatter back out into their communities. It's really hard to say that it happened here. We're able to do it with this one because of the visibility. We know the attendance list of the people that were actually there and they're all really high profile. And guess what? They have access to great testing that reveals those infections when somebody else tests positive. So just because we haven't documented it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It's just that we've got an event now that is very visible, well-documented, well-tested, and we're seeing the outcome from it. We still don't know exactly how many people were infected at that Rose Garden ceremony and how many more might be affected through community spread when the attendees went home to their families or met with their coworkers. I think most importantly, we have to keep in mind, events like this are hardly ever a singular event. That's the challenge for contact tracers. Not only do they have to look at this event and who was there, but they also have to look at the whereabouts of those attendees in the moments, the hours, and the days before and after the event. Who else were they in contact with? And when may they have been most contagious? Contact tracing is laborious work, important work, but that is how you start to take control of a pandemic. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.